infrastructure as code tools are used to define the architecture of software systems. Common infrastructure as code tools include Terraform and AWS CloudFormation. When infrastructure is defined as code, we can use static analysis tools to analyze the code for configuration mistakes, just as we would analyze a programming language with traditional static analysis tools. When a developer writes a program, that developer might use static analysis to parse a program for common mistakes. Memory leaks, potential null pointers, security holes. The concept of static analysis can be extended to infrastructure as code as well, allowing for the discovery of higher-level problems, such as insecure policies across cloud resources. Guy Eisencott is an engineer with BridgeCrew, a company that makes static analysis tools for security and compliance. Guy joins the show to talk about cloud security and how static analysis can be used to improve the quality of infrastructure deployments. Guy Eisencott, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Large enterprises have a dedicated security team. They also have dedicated software engineering teams. This has been the case for a long time. Over time, there has been a shift in responsibility from the security teams doing security work to the software teams doing security work. Why have software teams increasingly had a responsibility to do security work? Yeah, it's uh, probably the the first or probably the the main understanding that me and my my co-founders came to about two or three years ago when we started uh, thinking about starting another startup. If I have to pinpoint one thing specifically, I think power to developers. I think we've seen it in our own engineering team, how more and more product management decision and architecture decisions are just flowing downstream and you have you know, the, this amazing and, and very uh, independent generation of developers who, who not only wants to build and design, but really wants to shape how things are going to, to get done forward. And I think that that's been, you know, for our team and the teams that we've worked with, startups and enterprise, I think that was probably the main, main uh, movement or shift we've seen in the past 12, 18 months. Infrastructure as code is a way of declaratively describing how your software architecture fits together. I feel like there is a connection between infrastructure as code and modern software engineering security practices. What's the connection between infrastructure as code and security? I would, yeah. And if, if we take a step back and maybe focus or zoom in on, on cloud. So in cloud, we define infrastructure as anything that can get changed or provisioned or controlled through a cloud provider API. And when you think about it, it's it's kind of crazy. Think of even the concept or a notion of a firewall, which is like a classic pillar of infrastructure. And like for the past 25 years, people have been selling it in in boxes, you know, you get it, you put it in your data center, you usually wire it. You know, the p- person who knows the firewall best is, is the guy that, you know, dragged it in into the data center. And when you think of a firewall in the cloud, you know, it's like in, in, in Amazon, a security group. It's like six or seven lines of code. It's it's pretty ridiculous. You, you, you took this enormous idea of configuration, which was something that was uh, very centralized and managed uh, on almost a physical basis, and you've turned it into just another component within within software. So I think when I look at infrastructure as code and what it's doing to security and, and software development, I think about all these previous notions we've had of how or what infrastructure is and make these correlations into how they look like in the cloud. Um, take data, databases as another example. You know, 
in like our previous startup, we had like three different database systems and we thought we were like, you know, super advanced and crazy for using, you know, both a file system, one for machine learning, one for short time retention and uh, thinking we're, you know, reinventing the wheel. Now with Amazon or Google Cloud, you have dozens of database services. All of them can be toggled on and off, provisioned, refactored, migrated with, you know, tens, even less than 100 lines of code. And we think, you know, when we, we think of security, we, we look at these pillars of infrastructure that are, are getting migrated into code and, and just, you know, redefining this role of what cloud infrastructure and what the cloud infrastructure engineering has become. Popular ways of defining infrastructure as code include Terraform and cloud formation. Describe how these different tools for infrastructure as code declaratively managed. How do these tools work? Yeah, sure. So I think the best way to think of declarative is to think about an infrastructure or an architecture that you know what its end state is going to be. So the nice, nice thing about declarative is you basically write a very simple language that defines objects that eventually get deployed just the way that uh, you wrote them to be. Another thing that you can do with, with declarative, such as Terraform or CloudFormation, is to write it in steps and uh, make sure that the next step or the next few steps are layering that initial plan that you have. So this is extremely useful for writing in um, networking, for example. So if you want to you know, configure a new network, a subnet or a VPC in, in cloud infrastructure, it's really, it's really, really simple. Instead of remembering all the dotted lines and everything that gets connected together, to think of the end state, what's the application going to look like? What's its ingress or egress rules going to be? And once you start with that, you can basically build out any logic that makes it either more granular or scales it out and makes it uh, more robust as you have that end state in mind. When you have imperative, I think the most famous term to really have that pictured is, uh, is basically thinking of recipes. So having a clear set of actions you'd like to perform and then basically give the, the system the ability to decide what are the best ways to orchestrate those steps going forward. This is super useful for people that are managing fleets of virtual machines, for example. Using an imperative language really enables you to build them in a stateful manner that enables you to think of every step of the way and every thing that needs to get deployed every cent in time. How do people choose between Terraform and CloudFormation? It's a good question. So I think there's two considerations out there. And if you ask me, I think uh, we're going to see a huge trend in this uh, in the past, uh, in the next uh, coming months and in, in seeing, you know, HashiCorp, who, which owns and, and maintains uh, Terraform, obviously, is, is getting bigger and more noticeable in the, in the landscape. And uh, there's more and more companies that want to take a piece of that and be part of that party. Obviously, CloudFormation is Amazon's proprietary language for writing infrastructure as code. It actually has its own competitors in, in, internally for, for writing infrastructure. So you can, you, know, you can use CloudFormation, but you can also use CDK, which is another way to write a more imperative style of, uh, of, uh, of infrastructure. But when you look at CloudFormation versus Terraform, I think the main difference is that you, you will eventually write CloudFormation only for your Amazon Web Services resources, and you will probably write Terraform for everything inside Amazon. They have great support of, of Amazon, but they also have this great ability to Basically, take any type of infrastructure, whether it's cloud infrastructure, but not only. So you can think of, you know, databases as a service. And even GitHub, your code repo, can, can eventually get provisioned, changed, managed using that very robust, very flexible HashiCorp language that enables you to deploy resources at scale. So for our customers, Terraform has been a natural choice because it does 
give you the ability to use that same language and to continue using it even for you know for your next cloud provider and for your next provisioning uh, tools. But on the other hand, you know Amazon is super competitive and and uh, we are already seeing it ramp up a lot of the features that uh, Terraform was able to bring up thanks to a, you know a huge community that's behind it. So I expect to see some more some more competition between the two. But uh, my personal opinion, more companies going to diverse their cloud portfolios. Terraform is eventually going to reign on top. Have you heard of a company called Pulumi? I have, yeah. Yeah, we just did a show with Pulumi a while ago, which is an interesting blend of classic programming languages and declarative infrastructure. I guess the goal is to give you the best of both worlds when it comes to the puppet and chef imperative world versus the Terraform declarative world. Do you see that as valuable or important? I think so. So, you know, if I have to categorize it in my head, and I'll be frank, I haven't used Pulumi. I've, I've seen some of their, they have some very good documentation out there about what they're doing and and always happy to see another, you know, loud voice for pro infrastructure as code. But think of all, all of these technologies eventually as additional abstractions that are supposed to help you simplify the very complex world of, of cloud native. I think one customer of ours had told me, you know, think of, you know, the hundreds of services and APIs I have to track on my existing services that I use on Amazon. Now multiply that by my next cloud provider, whether it's Google Cloud or Azure. And basically Terraform has been a safe zone where they know, you know, we have to learn one language. Eventually it's a pretty similar abstraction on top of all three clouds. But I can definitely see why the complexity of multiple provisioning languages is probably a, a challenge that I can see it on, on the next hill. I, I think our our current partners and customers are still climbing that uphill against, you know, working or getting a good or solid uh, recognition of all the complexity they have with their existing cloud provider. Bottom line, I see in even in the near, near term, more and more technologies. I think I've even heard of another open source project just a few uh, days back. I, great ideas and great ways to create additional abstraction layers over the complexities of the cloud. And yeah, I'm rooting for them. I think as we get more and more configuration as code, I think eventually developers are the ones that are, are, are benefiting because we're giving them more power. And you know, the more centralized and independent teams are in how they build and how they think of you know, software, and the more they use infrastructure as code and the more we simplify infrastructure as code, the more robust, scalable, and secure systems we will see getting built. What kinds of security mistakes get made when defining my infrastructure with these infrastructure as code tools? Yeah, it's, a, it's a, actually a great question, actually one that I'm uh, dealing with right now. So actually there were, you know, the first wave of research around the mistakes and errors around infrastructure as code are now getting published. There was a great research that the research arm from Palo Alto Networks released like a few months back, which had like a great overview of the different types of configuration errors you can find in code. I think what they did is scanned, you know, public repositories and tried to identify in within template files that can be found in, in these registries, what types of errors are built in within, within them, which is a kind of a tricky analysis because you, as we mentioned, you know, you, once you have a declarative language, eventually you can wrap a configuration error with a protective configuration, additional protective layer that can basically make that uh, previous configuration irrelevant. Just the same as vulnerabilities and exploits and what you can do to mitigate them. 
But eventually, I think uh, it goes to four main areas. I think one main area that we see for, for configuration errors is around usage of default uh, configurations. So cloud providers are very good at giving you this very broad canvas where you can build and uh, apply default configurations to get things up and running very fast. Take machine learning as an example. You know, in my previous company, it took us like two years to build a machine learning engine. And, you know, now with native tools uh, like SageMaker and others, you can build, you know, the most robust airflow-based machine learning pipeline in minutes. And what we see is when users are using, using the, these default configurations and bringing it into their production environments, they forget that sometimes that these default configurations' purpose was to get you up and running very fast and not uh, necessarily to a point where you can basically build the most secure system. So I think one main area that we see is, is that, that people are just not very aware that default configurations are not very good. I think cloud providers understand that more now more than ever. And they're actually pushing some of those you know, previously done mistakes, like uh, you know, leaving buckets public or leaving encryption unused as, as things that are getting one cheaper into uh, becoming default configurations. So that's one bucket. I think the other one is around making sure that everything gets logged and audited uh, correctly. And for me, or for us as security practitioners, this actually goes without saying because you know we're used to building you know the software that tracks you know things that happen like OS telemetry and networking telemetry because we configure the firewalls in the old generation. But today, when users are configuring their own infrastructure, if they don't or they're not bounded or restricted to use infrastructure that reports consistent telemetry, then I think you know they're just black holes. So suddenly you have ephemeral resources or, or different pockets within your public cloud that are just not logged and audited, regions that you have activity and you get billed for them, but you're not really sure who's using them and why. So that's like another mass, mass area where we're seeing misconfigurations, just not using some of those tools that are unfortunately not the most or the least uh, pricey, but uh, you know they're just you know that bottom line, they're that just that baseline that you have to have in order to know what's going on outside your your spend on the cloud. Uh, so number two, you know, just ensuring that everything gets logged and audited. Number three is is around uh, compliance requirements. There's like two main ones that usually recur, which is the use of encryption and uh, proper management of users and credentials, and and this is where it gets simple and complicated. Um, it's simple in the way that it's easy to turn on encryption today, probably now more than ever. On the other hand, more and more frameworks like uh, SOC2, NIST, PCI are now requiring that you encrypt almost everything, especially with data privacy becoming uh, um, an area where more and more auditors are getting focused on. So it's easy on one hand. On the other hand, there's lots of services to encrypt. So that's another bucket that we see a lot of uh, misconfigurations in. And the last one, it, it ties back to compliance, but it's also, you know, ties back to everything, but it's the use of uh, AWS IAM and any, you know, proprietary IAM, cloud native IAM for that matter. So we have actually just uh, uh, introduced an open source tool that tries to help users clean up the mess for that, because we've seen so many environments, you know, that got spun up in the last three, four or five years. And, you know, they have these pockets of different generations of uh, access controlling them. So like two or three SAML providers, different usage of of like roles, permissions, inheriting roles and permissions. So crazy big role, but lots of lots of misconfigurations in that area. Eventually, most of our users decide to attack it because their compliance auditor found out that they're just not managing their IAM as, as they're supposed to. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it can be a nightmare. If, even if you just talk about generations of developers coming through a company rather than generations of of tools, you know, 
you have these IAMs and IAM groups that get set up, and it can be hard to keep track of which group has access to what and who is a part of what group. Tell me more about some of the mistakes that can be made in IAM, by the way, is Identity and Access Management, for those who don't know the acronym. But tell me more about some of the mistakes that can be made in policy management. Uh, sure. One of our favorite topics. Just to maybe before that, let's set this up. So think of uh, using IAM um, and a lot of configuration for that matter. But IAM is like one of those that really sticks or nail it home. But uh, think of it as like almost archaeology. We've seen environments that are like six, seven, eight years old, which are probably, you know, these are old environments in, in AWS terms. And you can really see, you know, the layers and layers of fossils that have, have come about because users initially, you know, maybe they used the internal IAM and then switched back to an external identity provider and then switched back. So I think when you look at it, you have to understand that like fashion, cloud, development has trends and has new services that are coming in all along. And it seems like identity and access is the one, you know, has been like a poster child for being one that's both, you know, super simple to set up in the sense that you can, you know, write or configure a new user fairly easily, especially if you compare it, you know, to your Active Directory days where, you know, you had just one IT admin that was able to provision new roles uh, in the system. Now, you know, a lot of the, even the AWS managed policies give you quite vast permissions to create new roles and to edit permission documents and, and to for almost every resource that you spin up. So on one hand, you know, managing IAM in, in Amazon, for example, but it's the same for, for the other cloud providers is extremely easy in the sense that it's accessible. Developers have it in their hands today. But on the other hand, it's, a, it's really hard to define, you know, what's the specific best practice because it really goes down to, you know, what's your end result and what are you going to uh, try to aspire to get to? seen uh, you know a banking an online banking company that had to go through their PCI audit that just decided to clear out everything that's not their existing SAML provider so they wanted to remove probably 90% of IAM configurations that were available just to be able to report to an auditor that the system is working with just a single provider not because it gives them you know the best speed or development pace just because it's the only way to pass a PCI audit to be able to define a very restricted restricted set of users that have access to a single place. So, I think where we've we've taken you know I am as we've seen it, and, and you may understand we've seen like probably over a hundred AWS accounts so far with like every type of permutation of configurations you can think of. Uh, fairly fairly early in the process, we saw that one thing that you have to do with IAM uh, is to codify it, and and by codifying it, it means unfortunately taking it out of AWS, out of that manual configuration console, which is actually very user-friendly, but very destructive in the sense that uh, it really encourages people to build and write their own log individual logics to how things should communicate and have access to each other, and to ensure that everything gets managed as code. So we are, as you may understand, are firm believers in moving configurations that are manual into configurations that are automated, and as I mentioned, we've just built out this tool, which we've actually been using for the past month, couple of months to migrate the existing AWS IAM permissions into a much simpler model that basically one cleans all the unused users, groups, policy documents, permissions that are just not in use. And we're using a great Amazon API called Access Advisor that gives us all the telemetry for free. 
And once we get that uh, all cleaned up, we basically migrate all those manual configurations into one neat Terraform file. And the reason we think it's so cool is, is suddenly, you know, user management and access management isn't, isn't something that's a standalone configuration that you have to go and do every time you build a new project, but it's actually part of your code. So just like you build your networking configuration, as I mentioned, declarative infrastructure as code is great for that. You're just going to have to start working with, with your cloud provider and use their IAM uh, provider and module pack to define those as code. And if you're unfortunately you know, using manual configurations, multiple providers, you can basically use that tool that I mentioned that's called Air IAM. It's free, open source, Apache 2, and migrate all your manual configurations. And I think it's improved our way of tracking identity and access internally and also for our customers. And looking forward, I think, you know, I think more and more configurations are going to go through that transition. And I think Amazon's going to get it too and, and make much, much more of that IAM API setup get much more accessible through infrastructure as code, whether it's CloudFormation, CDK, landing zones, uh, control tower, all those products that help you, Amazon products that help you set up and define policies, permissions uh, beforehand. SCP is another one. So you're saying that much of the way that policy is managed today is through a CLI tool or just going into the Amazon uh, AWS dashboard, whereas in the future there maybe there should be higher level tools that allow you to reckon with these in more of an automated fashion. Correct. So, so just to generalize, I think uh, there's I think this goes for probably mo- most of the first, second gen services that Amazon came out with. So, so think of S3 buckets, EC2s, IAM, probably top two, top three. I might be missing a few others. But I think what happened with those more mature tools is that people have you know, accumulated this long tail of configurations that now in 2019, 2020, when people are starting to uh, you know, look back and, and you know, you've got some great open source and commercial tooling out there that helps you clean up the mess, uh, you're suddenly seeing all that long tail of configurations you have uh, dragged on. I think uh, open source community has, has been doing a great job in in surfacing a lot of that, you know, bad practices around IAM hygiene and uh, other areas. And if I generalize it, I think what's happening even within the Amazon tool base is that, you know, they're obviously understanding people that people want to clean up a lot of that mess historically because they've seen that once you don't clean up that historical mess and you keep those you know fossils are buried inside your architectural layers over time they can get exploited so you know this might have not happened two or three years ago because um, i don't know maybe it was uh, like the grace of uh, of aws at that point but we're seeing more and more of these resources get, getting attacked and, and targeted by both the research community that that's looking for vulnerabilities and that's great but also for a much darker set of actors that just understands that these are APIs accessible to the internet that you can exploit. Now that you've described policy management issues, and I eventually want to get to to some of the tools that you're building, but I want to talk more about problems that occur in the creation of infrastructure as code configurations. So networking is another issue that uh, can lead to can lead to problems in, in security. If you configure your network incorrectly, what kinds of mistakes get made in network configuration in regards to infrastructure as code? 
Yeah, so it's probably not as complex as it is for for your uh, IAM, actually. Uh, networking, is, as we see it, is eventually, there's, you can almost think of it as two religions, right? So uh, you have people that come come out of the uh, the identity space or have identity, strong identity backgrounds, and they decide to, like, segregate and separate their, their environment and to decide, you know, how they're going to do multi-tenancy and other types of uh, internal um, uh, building, you know, those logical walls inside. And you have this other religion of people that manage policies uh, through networking. And, and, you know, in the cloud, maybe I'm, I'm being too simplistic in this, but in the cloud, it really doesn't uh, matter that much. Eventually, you know, an access group or a security group, which both get defined with uh, six or seven lines of code, they get exploited and manipulated and, and their managed policies look uh, different. But eventually, the work that goes into managing and provisioning them is pretty much the same in the amount of code you have to write. But specifically around networking, I think we've seen probably three uh, main areas of problem. I mean, this kind of, uh, kind of talks to my previous point. So one is, and, and this has been talked about quite a lot, is the use, again, of default configurations, specifically Amazon's uh, default VPC, which for, for some reason still uh, enables you to create a new VPC that's wide open to the internet. So when you create a, a new VPC on Amazon, um, uh, you, you eventually uh, get yourself uh, something that's supposed to be a, you know, a virtual uh, network, but eventually if, if it's widely open, for example, to the internet or for like port 22 for SSH connections, it could be exploited uh, immediately uh, once it goes online. So we see users that uh, understand that and actually Amazon now enables you to block that type of configuration and, and not use that default VPC that creates a default security group uh, that, uh, that are both inherently containing that bad configuration and, and mistaken policy. That's one. Second is around databases uh, predominantly. So um, again, at zooming on Amazon, you have your your managed Elasticsearch, your managed Elasticash, the Redis database. You have S3, obviously, archiving databases. So tons of ways to store uh, data. You can use uh, SQL, relational, non-relational, Mongo, lots and lots of, uh, of these uh, databases types. And uh, where it gets complicated is that each and every one of these databases obviously rides on a unique protocol, port, and uh, IP number, and IP range once defined. And what we've seen in our customer base, and this, this you know, our references mostly to companies that are in their fifth, sixth, seventh year to building on Amazon, so, you know, pretty much sure. We just see that these databases over time, you know, various people touch them and use them and provision them, they just get wide, left wide open. So think of a database that eventually serves a web application, but for some reason is accessible Someone uh, basically that's scanning that port of address, that uh, range of addresses, and looks for an Elasticsearch, for example, that has access to the internet. Obviously, that's a that's a misconfiguration, a potential vulnerability, and someone can exploit that. So, I think uh, one thing that we instruct most of our our users at the first uh, couple of days is basically to focus on all the communication back and forth from uh, databases and to see what the ports are open, how our security groups manage, because sometimes for various reasons, you know, eventually data needs to go somewhere. So if it's to show something on a web application or to enrich a process that's doing some complex uh, you know, recommendation engine. Eventually, data in a database doesn't, uh, doesn't serve anyone. So that entire dynamic of uh, more and more people touching data and, and moving data from place to place has uh, historically gotten to a place where databases have become uh, a place where we see, we've seen more and more configuration errors and, and potential vulnerabilities. And I think you know, the, if you look up uh, Amazon Web Services and, and leaks for, for customers that are using Amazon Web Services, you will see that most of the data that was leaked was eventually coming from uh, misconfigured 
databases, whether it's access control over S3 or networking configuration on uh, on Elasticsearch that just enabled people to uh, to access them, to scrape them, to do man in the middle, things that are slightly more uh, more complex. So uh, note your default VPCs, note, note your uh, databases. A third cluster is uh, ephemeral resources. So think of everything that you need for a short period of time. I think the problem with that it's like it's a great way to save money, right? So one thing that uh, you know, ephemeral resources came to the world because you can basically spin up resources in the cloud for very short periods of time, let them do what they need to do, and shut them down. Spot instances work this way, and uh, computer um, and, and short-term compute workers work this way, and databases work this way. And it's pretty awesome for development. We've seen a lot of configuration errors around that area because what happens is that you can spin up ephemeral resources using AWS APIs, SDKs, uh, even external research, external services. Like if you're using, you know, Databricks, you can get or or a, or a managed data pipeline. You can get them to uh, to spin up databases for you. We've seen users that are defining that initial set of permissions and, and networking that that's required in order to get these external as a service working for them, but forget that eventually they have a networking wrapper that gets open and remains unused. So think of uh, a project or a data science project that you have that's running databases on one hand, compute workers on the, on the other, and those uh, workers get uh, launched up and down all the time. And in the interim, which can sometimes be hours or days, you have this set of network configurations that, that that's actually unused. And what happens is that uh, sometimes these networking configurations get generated dynamically. Um, so you get more and more of these networking configurations that are stale a lot of the time and are not being used. And over time, they get they become fossils and no one manages them. And obviously, if you don't uh, properly uh, manage those networking configurations, they, they become uh, exploitable. And, and if, if you don't clean them out, you won't, you won't have... Uh, uh, you'll you'll basically risk the possibility that someone will uh, will try to hack them. Do these mistakes get made because people don't know what they should be doing, or because they just like make a make a mistake, like a typo? Is it a lack of knowledge, or is it just like too much stuff in these configuration files? such that they, they do something wrong, even though they know if they took a second look at that piece of code, they would realize they're doing something wrong? Ah, oh, yeah, great question. Uh, you know, I, we haven't done the psychological <laughs> research to really see where, where some of these uh, configuration errors come from. I think my experience has showed me that it's definitely not, you know, negligence or lack of uh, willingness to write good infrastructure, um, as it is just super duper complex and manual and obviously not probably the most shiny part of the job. So I don't, I know a lot of developers. I don't know a lot of developers that like to write the unit tests that check out if their configuration is sound in the sense that it was configured based on the latest set of, uh, you know, policies that someone applied in, in, in their infrastructure as code system, if you get what I mean. But uh, I think uh, what, what I've seen is that mostly the complexity, the amount of arguments, the amount of different elements you can insert and inject into into resources has been probably the main contributor to misconfiguration errors being so common. And you have to connect that to where people are getting a lot of this configuration as code. So, you know, there's a lot of different sources out there in the same way as, you know, like six or seven years ago, everybody just started scraping every popular open source and building their stack based on that great set of open source tools that help us helped us build applications like 2015, 2016. And that brought in, you know, tons of vulnerabilities into our web applications. 
you have the exact same thing happening now with the configuration. So people are are going to these public repositories where which are you know eventually managed by good people from the community, from the cloud providers themselves. People are obviously contributing templates and modules of configurations, you know, putting them out there so they'll help someone achieve a goal. What they're not thinking about correctly, and I think that's probably the biggest disadvantage of you know building in the speed of infrastructure is code is that as you write that declarative language, you're not constantly thinking, hey, is this going to, when I finish, is this going to be sound in terms of the configurations and the different arguments that I've inserted? Because you can, as I mentioned, you can write a firewall logic in six lines of code, like AWS Security Group. But if you don't really look at what's in those three lines of code and make sure that it doesn't only make your application work with two services that are in different uh, VPCs or subnets, but it's also not exposing that you know compute asset that you've just built to potential hazardous access. Then whose whose fault is it? Who's accountable for it? And when we talk, we started to talk about that shift of responsibilities that started with you know security teams that were centralized and had the role and responsibility to make sure that people you know don't get fished online or that websites don't get harassed or tarnished and. And now in the cloud, you know, we're expecting them to be able to get inside each and every developer's mind and make sure that each and every configuration that they make is uh, security aware. I don't think it makes sense. It sounds to me like there should be another boundary between the developer, which we're asking from to write the best code they can to get the business goal as fast as possible. And on the other hand, to have an internal force, hopefully it's like an automation, it doesn't have to be a person, that continues and makes sure that all this configuration that get, that gets pushed into production is continuously getting checks for potential misconfiguration and errors because you know eventually as more and more of these activities get crowdsourced and when I mean crowdsourced I mean they get go back to developers when they inject one of these configurators into code and the less less exploits we'll see and the less work will give security and DevOps folks right. All right. Well, this brings us to Chekhov, which is a project that your company, Bridge Crew, created. Chekhov finds security and compliance misconfigurations. So I can run this at CICD time, and as my code is getting ready to be deployed, I can check it for misconfigurations. What are the common security and compliance misconfigurations that I could find with Chekhov? Great question. So Chekhov is fun. Uh, I'll just give some background, but we started off like uh, four months ago, almost. After, obviously, and I'll, I'll go a little bit sidetracked, but I'll get back to your question in like 60 seconds, I promise. We saw that when you try to fix a lot of the configuration errors in runtime, I mean, in, specifically in AWS, in, as in, you know, you're like using a Lambda function that will correct a, a configuration, what happens is that the nightly build that contains, you know, that declarative Terraform plan is going to override that configuration fix that you made. Uh, so we understood that, you know, specifically the the analysis of configuration and the correction of configuration has to happen much further upstream. So uh, my co-founder, Brock Schuster, which is, uh, you, you have to meet him sometime. He's like a wonder kid. He's pretty amazing. Uh, he locked him, himself up uh, this one weekend about uh, f- four or five months ago. And after like two days where we haven't heard from him, he, he came out with a uh, with Chekhov, which is, you know, eventually it's a very simple Python tool that does study code analysis. And there's like a hundred others 
out there. But what we did with it is we we just gave it the exact set of scanning capabilities that we saw, you know, Amazon and Google and Azure eventually requesting us as users to track, obviously through a framework, like the CIS framework, which which gives uh, like a the most foundational set of policies and checks uh, people should monitor and most cloud providers now now give you that uh, almost for free. You can you can toggle it on and use it for free. Uh, but no one was looking at um, at the infrastructure as code. So so you know he he came up with it and we blitzed like two or three of our in-house developers to writing up the content and making sure that it goes out there and, and really covers as many configuration types and the configuration errors as as we we've encountered and as close as possible to the to those frameworks. So if someone really wants to adhere to that framework and that's how they're getting their NIST 800 or SOC 2 or PCI DSS have another layer of protection. So eventually Chekhov looks at those same uh, families that I mentioned before. The Chekhov looks obviously at the networking layer. So it uh, looks at uh, security group and uh, VPC configurations to track and see that you're using best practices and not exposing networking publicly to the internet when you're not supposed to or you don't want to do it intentionally. It looks at um, databases, as I mentioned. It looks at databases six for encryption on, on most of the popular databases. It looks at a lot of binary configurations. For example, it looks for, for all the logging configurations that I also mentioned and makes sure that you have those uh, toggled on. And for the past two and a half months, we've put more and more emphasis on uh, on the compute. Added support for most of the you know EC2 management, obviously, but also for, for the Kubernetes, uh, managed Kubernetes uh, capabilities now and just making sure more and more of those services are are covered and eventually what we want to accomplish there is to have as much parity as we have with the policy, policy as code obviously, which I don't think I've mentioned up until now, that we have defined in runtime. So your cloud provider may be helping you track or a third party tool or an open source tool is helping you track all the misconfigurations within your cloud provider APIs and settings. But uh, Chekhov has been a great asset for us and for, for the community actually by being able to track those same sets of policies as the infrastructure is getting built in, in Terraform, CloudFormation, and, and very soon a few other exciting languages which we all know and love. So Chekhov has all these different policies that relate to different pieces of infrastructure. I don't know, DynamoDB and Fargate and whatever else. Do these policies get crowdsourced? Are you writing most of them yourself? How do you get the necessary coverage of all the different infrastructure pieces that you could need some pre-baked set of security and compliance analysis over? Yeah, it's uh, probably uh, the the most encouraging topic, Jeff. So uh, you know, eventually, <laughs> eventually, you know, we're we're a group of uh, like uh, oh, today like uh, eleven engineers strong that have like two hundred thousand other things that uh, they want to do. We started off with the core CIS framework, which covers uh, roughly thirty checks. It, it has like 50, 50 something, but covers thirty checks that you can actually sample statically. Some of them require you to have a periodic analysis, uh, a difference between time to time, like uh, ensuring that key rotation happens every 30 days. That's something you're not going to be able to do with study code analysis on Terraform. But everything that get, can get covered by the CIS framework, that, that's been our, our core focus initially. And as we saw, I think this was around January, as we saw more and more traction you know, in downloads and stars and just issues that are getting open directly on GitHub, 
uh, we saw there's you know this huge appetite for the community to to chip in and to help out with things that they're building that are not necessarily the things that we and our customers are building. We have a great group out of um, you know a consulting company, very famous uh, out of UK, which is building a lot of um, you know managed Kubernetes in uh, um, Google Cloud stuff, and they're just you know they've decided to contribute some of their work back, and we have. An individual contributor from Europe who's like super keen on getting S3 configurations right. So he took, you know, on, in, in the framework, you have like three or four major policies that you want to look into. I think he added like six or seven additional ones. So it's it's been growing nicely. And I think, uh, you know, that's, that's it, it wasn't our initial objective initially to, to get the community to help us do this. But I think people saw the opportunity for a very simple solution. That's written in Python, which I think is super important. Not enough infrastructure as code is, is done in Python these days. People see Python, they see it's familiar, they see how simple it is to write a policy. And people have been contributing, I think almost 40% of the content is now contributed. So it's been growing nicely and and we're, we're going to, to chip our part and continue to add more and more provisioning languages just to make sure that uh, people can use that for, you know, for their additional provisioning workspaces and to make sure that those get covered by a unified set of policies. And do you do you have some particular areas of policy that you've focused on and some particular pieces of infrastructure that you've, you've focused on? I mean, there's so many potential configurations that people could present to you. You know, I, I ship my code to CICD and Chekhov runs over it. I got to imagine that there are some long tail services and configuration mistakes that I could be making that would not be covered by Chekhov. So how are you prioritizing what policies to get written? Yeah, eventually it's a trade-off between two main factors. One main factor is how common does does the configuration get abused or get get an error for? So if you know you have some building blocks or some very popular modules out there that are actually co- containing most of the things that you need to get a, a proper resource in place. So I think the, I'll give just two examples, but I think the module, the, the supported AWS modules for S3 and EC2 are, are great in the sense that they're spinning up a fairly secure set of resources and, and all that a ecosystem around both of these resources. I'll give you the opposite example where we've just seen a lot of configuration error, which is RDS for some reason. So this is a combination of uh, multiple arguments and attributes that you have when you configure RDS. People are also using RDS historically. Um, so fixing uh, RDS configuration is not that easy because you have to migrate actually to a new RDS instance before you, configuration, you, before you make the configuration fixes in Terraform, but very, very predominant. So we've actually focused on, on RDS and some additional popular database system like Elasticsearch is another one of them because we saw that uh, those are just getting a lot of uh, hits in terms of uh, configuration failures and errors in our small customer base. So you understand one obviously is the the amount of configuration errors. The second one is exploitability. And this is where it, it gets tricky. I think I mentioned also this already, but exploitability around configuration is probably not as mature as it is in other forms of, uh, of, of programming languages. And, and you know, it's, it's one of the challenges that our, our team has faced in the sense that, you know, you can basically wrap every configuration with so many layers that potentially can protect it where it gets to the point where you're asking yourself for, for families of configurations that are very deep inside the logic of the application, whether it makes sense even to, to uh, repair them or not. And that's where we have the discretion to focus, for example, on 
on resources that are facing the cloud. So think of load balancers is, I think, a good example. So, uh, you know, your load balancer eventually is your front-end server that, uh, that talks to the internet and makes sure that all your requests are getting routed to the, to the right places, but it has a, like a very wide surface area in the sense that it can get attacked and, and if it gets exploited, it can uh, lead people inside your organization. And that's why we've doubled down on, you know, the elastic load balancer, the, AL, the ELB, the ALB, the previous generation as well, just because it's like in a much more, just more in, in, in a much more uh, likely scenario going to get uh, exploited as a, as a source of configuration. And also, it's another one of those uh, resources that obviously got a few provisions and additions of additional features and APIs added to it. And it also made some of the uh, more granular configuration, I mean, getting it right, slightly more complex. So on the, on the other hand, you have like very good modules and templates for it. But when you think of something that has such a, a wide surface in terms of its touch with the public internet, that's probably one set of configurations you really want to get right. And and I think for Chekhov, it was probably the right decision to focus on having like a very solid set of policies around it that really try to nail the, the, the right configurations that you have to have on it. Okay, so if I run Chekhov during CICD, what would happen? A great question. So there's actually three ways you can run Chekhov. So you can run it from your personal computer. You pip install Chekhov. You point it to a folder, whether it's you know online, local, that contains your configuration errors. And you'll basically get a report printed out of all the all the configuration errors, first thing. And you can start uh, knocking them off one by one. You get uh, the annotation of where exactly in the code the configuration error was found, what policy is in violation. And actually, we extract all the variables. So if you're inheriting variables from other places within the directory, we'll actually point you to the variables which we used in order to scan the code. So pretty cool. So one place, do it locally in your computer. Most of our users do that for the first time. And then they see what big of the problem they have. Uh, companies that have like one Terraform file that rules them all, probably that's a good way to do go do a one-time project. But probably if you're managing a team of like five, six, seven engineers, bigger than that, you'll probably want to automate. And, uh, and that's the two other methods. One way is to actually integrate to like a pre-commit hook. So you can integrate this into your you know, your Jet, JetBrains ID, your GitHub ID, anything that you use to write your code. And uh, eventually it does, uh, it, it does the same uh, logic of scan in a much uh, shorter dimension, but in the, in the sense it captures the configurations before you push them into your, or merge them into your code base. So that's probably a great place if you have, uh, if, if you have like dedicated engineers that are writing infrastructure all the time. We've had a community com- contributed plugin to pre-commit, which which I think is awesome. You know, just find those configuration errors as code is getting imported into the code base and before it gets merged into a master branch. The third place, and, and I think that's that's been probably the most popular use case, is to put it, you know, on a Jenkins server, a Circle CI server, and have it just run as one of uh, one of your uh, tests that are testing a merge once it's a, a branch once it's complete. So we have a customer that you know, ran locally, saw that they have tens, I think even hundreds of users that are managing and changing Terraform code. And what they did basically is they integrated, integrated Chekhov into their CI system, to their CI system, excuse me. And what they did is that every branch, once it uh, goes through uh, um, uh, the merge request, it goes through a set of checks, obviously, uh, unit tests and so forth. And one of them is Chekhov. And if Chekhov fails at least one of the tests, the entire branch fails. So you'll, you could do this on... You, probably any, any, any one of the uh, popular continuous integration software and continuous delivery software out there. But it's pretty cool. So what, what happens is that the branch gets failed, the user, the developer 
gets a notification that their branch had failed because of a checkoff failure in identifying encrypted EBS volumes, for example. And they have to select between remediating, basically writing, you know, looking it up on Terraform documentation, seeing what's the argument, why it's missing or, or an existing configuration is out of policy, or they can provide a suppression. So they can provide an inline suppression. And once they do, actually, that CD systems picks it up and moves it to one of the code owners. So every time someone wants to skip, annotate a, a skip of a check of failure, it basically goes to the code owners group and they have to approve that request before it goes to another build process. So that's probably the more advanced way uh, to use Chekhov. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's been going uh, it's going been going fairly well for some of our customers. We've seen like very very big footprint customers. Uh, we know Amazon internally are using them. Even HashiCorp uh, has tested it at some point. Salesforce have given it a try and, and, and given some good feedback. So so lots of good uh, Google big companies have tried it and, and provided some valuable feedback. And we're we're pretty happy to see it getting integrated and merged into more and more systems and more in you know unique workflows. And just to clarify, this is a static analysis tool for finding misconfigurations. What's difficult about building a static analysis tool? Just one thing, the content. So, you know, someone has to sit down, research, or get the knowledge of what's a misconfiguration, create a signature or the rule, and deploy it. I think we've had We've had the maybe luck to say that we did, we just, you know, in the past year, we've done it in runtime, the same exact drill. We've written and built uh, scans for Python-based scanners that have looked at Amazon telemetry and APIs and picked up on configurations. And then we thought we saw there was no very mature equivalent in Python in, in, for build time. And that's, that's been our, our, our mission. So actually writing the framework or doing the static analysis I told you, it took Barak, which is obviously a prodigy, but it took him two days. Uh, the challenge <laughs> has, been, uh, has been to write the content and to write the right content. We try to keep our policies in check and, and always to, to think if, if we would want those checks in our CD system as well. So you are a part of Bridge Crew, which is a business. What does your platform do on top of the open source tooling? So actually, we have a sound philosophy around it. It's uh, so Bridge Crew. Just to give the like the formal background, it was founded in February 2019 between uh, me and my two amazing co-founders, Idan Tendler, which is our CEO that sits in San Francisco, and Barak Schuster, which I mentioned is obviously a, like a computing science and an open source prodigy, which I really probably the, the most smart person I met in my life. And it was founded like a year ago. Just raised, uh, just announced, we raised uh, in total 18 million dollars. 14 million of those. Uh, from a cool uh, venture capital out of California called Battery Ventures. And obviously our, our seed funders and, and backed by uh, NFX, which is another uh, California and Israeli fund. So we believe, in short, that this entire layer of identifying the problems is something that uh, should be free. And I think the community already understood this much better than us. There's like tens, if not hundreds of tools out there that give great visibility into configuration and everything around your cloud infrastructure. We're just tagging along for the ride, and we've actually used and contributed to some of this amazing open source and incorporated some of it back into our commercial application. But we believe that everybody, everybody should have the access to good visibility around their configuration and configuration errors. And in that sense, you know, open sourcing Chekhov was a no-brainer. We thought uh, as part of this philosophy, we have to contribute this type of rationale back. And uh, we're mostly focusing the business aspect on the fact that eventually you have 
tons and tons of, uh, of, of great cloud security talent, but it's all focused in like three or four companies. You know, they're working probably for Netflix or Airbnb or Lyft or Spotify. And there's tons of great developers out there that are not enjoying the privilege of either working with them, learning from them outside, you know, going to conferences, which are probably not going to happen the next uh, year. And we wanted to almost democratize and take some of that knowledge around how to automate these processes and make them much more simpler for end developers. So not everybody, so some developers can download Chekhov and run them locally. Not all developers can incorporate them into their Jenkins pipeline, but very, very few developers actually know by heart all the different arguments and fixes you have to do for the different provisioning languages. So the BridgeGrew platform, which actually has a community element to it that focuses entirely on the visibility aspect of it. As I mentioned, we want that area to be as accessible as possible and free. But the core platform, our pro plan, if you will, is focused on making a lot of the corrections and the fixes accessible to a more uh, a bigger crowd. So whereas you know our community plan, our open source is just giving you great visibility to your cloud infrastructure, if you want to fix things and do it like very, very fast, you should check out the pro plan, which actually has like a 60-day uh, free trial, which, which gives you the ability to look at it. And it contains both build time and runtime fixes. So you can uh, invoke Lambda functions that encrypt all your S3 buckets with a single click or you know, create your CloudTrail auditing logs in like two clicks and remove the unused IAM groups in like two clicks. And, and you know, that's you know, saving DevOps and security guys like or gals tons and tons of time. But it's also exposing a lot of the fixes in build time. So if you see a bad configuration in, in Chekhov, you'll, as I mentioned, have to go and figure it out. You have to go to the Terraform documentation. The platform and our commercial offering contains a fix that you can eventually uh, send out as a pull request and send it, send it directly to, to an engineer and uh, give them exactly a line of code that needs to be added exactly where it needs to be added. So if it's a, to change an existing array or to change an existing argument or to add a new uh, attribute, we basically provide that as a recommendation, and that's basically part of our core business to try to make some of that you know wealth of knowledge much more accessible to to all developers and just to make people write more secure code eventually. All right, guy. Well, it's been great talking to you, and thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs>